Please turn in your Bibles first, as you're, uh, once you get settled, turn in your Bibles first to Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Romans 11, verse 1 to 10. That will be our scripture reading uh, for our, our, uh, today. And then our sermon text is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. You might have forgotten that we were in 1 Samuel and that this was a regular series. It's been about a month uh, as I looked back uh, and, and saw the last time we were there. So we're back, uh, at least for the time being. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10 is our scripture reading. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 22 is our sermon passage. Brothers and sisters, again, God is about to speak to you. Not me. It's not my voice. It is the Lord. The public reading of God's word is attended with specific blessings. God's people, for most of its history, only had God's word read to them. We are in a a very privileged position in history in that we have multiple copies of the Bibles per household. But that has not been the case for most of our brothers and sisters who preceded us. They relied upon the Word of God being read. We might say that's the way God intended it, but obviously we know that nothing happens outside of His will. But God's Word is about to be read unto you. This is God's voice. This is the Lord speaking to you. Please give your full attention to His Word. Romans 11, 1-10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning at verse 12 and reading through the end of the chapter. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. 
And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news about that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. John, could I ask someone to run the box of Kleenexes that are in front of you up? Um, Please, I'm sorry to do this, but I think it would be more distracting for you to... I I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to to blow my nose in a moment. Sorry about that. Thank you. Let us uh, go before the Lord now in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do give you thanks again for your word. It is precious. It is far more precious than gold or silver or any of the most precious things that we could imagine. It is greater, it is better than honey, sweeter to us. As we read it, as we hear it read, O oh Lord, it is indeed a delight. We pray that by your spirit we would be taught from your word. We're grateful that your word is indeed living and active. We thank you, dear Lord, that it pierces our hearts, that it cuts to our very marrow. We pray, dear Lord, that you today would wield it like a scalpel, like a precision instrument, that you would use it, dear Lord, to continue that work of destroying the sin that remains in us. That you continue your work by your spirit as he attends to the reading and the preaching of the word, that work of sanctification, of making us more and more like Jesus. So please, O Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of the word and that we would be built up in our faith, encouraged, strengthened. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. As I already mentioned, it's been several weeks since we were in 1 Samuel. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but you will probably remember that the past few chapters, when we were in 1 Samuel back in December and November, those few chapters prior to our passage this morning, uh, they were building up to the events that have been described in chapter 4. What we read uh, back in December at the beginning of chapter 4, the first half, the first 11 verses, and now what we read today. Everything that has come to pass so far in chapter 4, along with the events in our sermon passage today, these were prophesied about by the unnamed prophet and by Samuel in chapters 2 and 3, with one exception. I won't tell you what that is. That'll give you something to think about as we work our way through the sermon passage today. But everything else, except for that one exception, it was prophesied and it came to pass exactly. Now, we need to remember what what the context is for our passage today. Remember... Eli, 
Remember his sons. Remember what they were engaged in, what we read about back in chapter 2 specifically. Because in the absence of that context, you read the passage today and it sounds really bad. It sounds dark. It sounds dire. But remember that Eli and his sons, they have been robbing from God's people. More importantly, they had been robbing from God himself when they took those choicest parts of the sacrifices that the people brought to the tabernacle at Shiloh. In chapter 2, verses 29 and 30, God calls out Eli for honoring his sons above God and for fattening themselves on the best parts of the offerings. And that passage serves as a foreshadowing of our own passage today. The Lord will get even more specific when he gives that word to Samuel and Samuel uh, relays that word to Eli in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is a dark chapter. First, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, and then Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the battle. And now in our passage, the high priest, Eli, who's also described here as the judge of Israel, he receives this news and he meets his own inglorious end. How do we come away from this chapter without feeling downtrodden? perhaps hopeless. Well, think about this. This is our, our, our propositional statement today, and perhaps this will see us through. God gives sight to the spiritually blind and hearts to the spiritually dead because he must be glorified. Let me say it again. God gives hearts, or rather, God gives eyes to the spiritually blind. And God gives hearts to the spiritually dead because he must be glorified. The sermon passage is divided into three sections, three points. He who has eyes is the first point. The departure of glory is the second. And stones will cry out is the third. So again, the first point, he who has eyes. The second, the departure of glory. And the third, stones will cry out. So let's... Uh, Consider now the first point of the sermon. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. The high priest's two sons, who were priests themselves, they have been killed in battle. And some unfortunate soul has to be the one to run the 20 miles up from the battlefield to Shiloh to give the bad news. Don't take it out on the messenger, is probably what this young man was hoping Verse 12 says that the runner is from the tribe of Benjamin. It's a tribe that will play a very prominent role in a few chapters in 1 Samuel. And that he ran literally up. It was mountainous terrain up from Aphek where the battlefield was to Shiloh. He ran up to Shiloh in one day. Now, we have marathons today, 26.2 miles I think it is. I don't know that from personal experience. But 20 miles uphill is quite a run. And this runner was not in the highest of spirits. He was in a state of mourning. We read in the first verse that his clothes were torn and that he had dirt on his head. This is, this is the, the proper disposition, the proper appearance, appearance for someone is mourning, is in mourning. Remember the book of Job. Remember Job himself who sat in sackcloth and ashes, who rent his garments, who had uh, uh, the dust of the earth on his head. Now remember why the Ark of the Covenant was in a position to be captured by the Philistines in the first place. 
As terrible as it was, the elders of Israel thought, after they had been defeated the first time by the Philistines, that the missing component in the battle was the ark. They saw it as some sort of super weapon. They considered it to, to be some kind of superpower, and they were going to, to wield that weapon to defeat their enemies on the field of battle. And so they sent men to Shiloh, and they retrieved the ark. It worked before, so why not now? Well, the difference now was that Israel had in large part departed from the Lord. God lays the blame for this squarely at the feet of the priests in Shiloh. And so now Israel was trying to weaponize the thing that served as the physical representation of the spiritual presence of God. And they did this. Why? Because their hearts were far from him. They thought this was some kind of magical talisman, some kind of, of, of magical box that they could just take out and get it to do their bidding. They really thought that this was going to manipulate Yahweh into doing what they wanted him to do. Israel had departed from God long before Phinehas' wife and their baby had their baby and named him Ichabod. And the misuse of the Ark of the Covenant served as proof. Verse 13 says, when he arrived, this, this man, this messenger, he's unnamed. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Now, Eli knew that the ark was, it was a risk for the ark to be taken into battle. And so he was anxious. He's, he's trembling. He knew that it should not have been removed from the tabernacle. But the problem was that Eli did nothing about it. And the proof that Eli had done nothing about it was that he was still alive, sitting on his, what was the word there in the Hebrews we mentioned a few uh, months ago, he's sitting on his throne. Literally, the word translated in the ESV is, is the Hebrew word for throne. Eli had become so preoccupied with his own glory that he had no concern for the glory of the Lord. And he, above all people, should have known that the motives behind the taking of the ark were wrong. As the high priest, he should have been willing to give up his life to prevent the ark of God from being used in this manner. But instead, he was complicit. And so the first time that we find Eli in chapter 4, the first time that he's, he's physically present in chapter 4, not mentioned by indirect reference, he is sitting on his throne watching. And waiting, and he's nervous and he's anxious because he knows that what has been done, what he has allowed to happen, is wrong. <clears throat> One complication, though, Eli was watching, but verse 15 says that he was old and he could not see. Already at the beginning of chapter 3, Eli's eyesight there is described as growing dim, it's becoming dim. And remember that description of Eli's failing sight in chapter 3 immediately followed, followed verse 1 in chapter 3, which said that there was no frequent vision in those days. Eli was watching, really listening. He's standing watch. He's on guard. He's, he's waiting to hear the slightest hint of something that's going on. And when he hears the cries of the people of the city, verse 14 says, When he heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? When the messenger enters the city, he doesn't have to say anything for the people to know the outcome of the battle. He does tell them, verse 13 says, but by the time he opens his mouth, he's merely, he's merely, merely confirming what they already knew based upon what they saw of him. They saw his appearance. He was not a jubilant warrior coming back 
to tell the good news of victory. He was in a state of mourning and distress. But when Eli heard the uproar, he couldn't tell if it was a jubilant celebration or cries of horror. He doesn't have the advantage of seeing the man's appearance to be prepared for the catastrophic news that he's about to be told. And so he asks, what is this uproar? And the man heard him, he came to Eli, and he told him what happened. And here in verse 15, we don't get the events. There's a brief pause. The narrator jumps in for a moment, and he tells us that Eli, at this point, he's 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And then we get the words of the messenger, the bad news in verse 16. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle, and I fled from the battle today. But the messenger hesitates. He doesn't quite know what to say. He doesn't know how to tell Eli about his sons. He doesn't know how to tell Eli about the ark. And so Eli prods him in verse 16. How did it go, my son? And then in verse 17, the narrator seems to hesitate. He who brought the news answered and said. He doesn't let the, the messenger just jump right into the message. And this messenger says, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now this news is a figurative and a literal blow to Eli. At hearing the news that the ark had been captured, Eli fell backward off the seat that he was on, this throne upon which he had positioned himself by the entryway to the tabernacle, and he broke his neck and he died. And the narrator tells us there, for the man was old and heavy. And this brings us to the second point, the departure of glory. We need to understand something here. I know for, for some of you, not all of you, so for some of you, you're kind of like me. And, and we, we have to struggle to get our coat buttons put together and our, our jackets buttoned up. We're, we're a little bit challenged with regard to our weight. And you read this passage and, and you think, oh boy, I'm like Eli. He's, he was an overweight guy who's described as a heavy man, and, and I'm a heavy man. I won't tell you what my doctor said to me the last time I went in for my physical. But he said, I, well, got to get more physical activity, more physical fitness. Got to try to do some exercising. Now, no doubt Eli had put on weight over the years from all of the choicest pieces of meat that he had indulged in from the sacrifices brought by God's people. But the mention of Eli being heavy, it is a theological note first. It's not merely descriptive of the man's physical weight. It depicts a man who has behaved in a theologically predatory manner. Worse than stealing the parts of the offering that were intended for the Lord, Eli was robbing God of his glory. This word that's translated heavy in our passage, it's closely related to the word that's translated in verse 21 as glory. These two words share the same root. Glory has in its etymology, in its meaning, of the, the idea of weight, of heaviness. Paul uses that phrase in the New Testament, one of his letters. He talks about this eternal weight of glory. Weight has a, or glory rather, has a weightiness to it. It's not a light thing. The word that was translated as honor back in chapter 2, verse 29, when the prophet comes to Eli and tells him that he has honored his sons above the Lord, it, 
is the same word. It has the same root. It's, it's the same closely related. So the words for honor and glory and weight or, or heaviness, they're all very closely related. And, and the fact that the author uses these words in these various places, it shows that the author is making a theological point when he brings the attention to Eli's weight in chapter 4, verse 18. Eli had sought to rob God of his glory, and he had made himself heavy in the process. And this served as both the physiological, but also, and more importantly, the theological cause of Eli's death. Not doubting his physical size. But worse than his physical size, the reason that his physical size is mentioned is because he is weighed down with sin. He's carrying the burden of profound sin, 40 years of sin on his shoulders. And he sees no need to unburden the sin of seeking to rob God of the glory that is due only to him. Now, as we've seen before, Eli, in so many ways, he represented the people of God. Uh, the people of Israel, that was, in fact, one of his two main duties as a high priest. He was to represent the people to God. He was to represent God to the people. We have to say he did a far better job of accurately representing Israel to God than God to Israel. His corruption in the tabernacle was itself a reflection of the corruption to be found in Israel. And vice versa, vice versa these two things went hand in hand. And it's a question of the chicken and the egg. Did they get the leader that they deserved or did the people follow after their leader? Well, at the end of verse 18, it's mentioned for the first time in the book of 1 Samuel that Eli was a judge of Israel. And that he did this. He served in this capacity for 40 years. So not only was he the spiritual leader of God's people, but he was also the nation's ruler in the absence of a, of a proper monarchy. And this compounds the heinousness of Eli's sins. The death of Eli, but especially the loss of the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, it indicates just how far God's people had moved away from him. Just how far they had departed from the Lord. Well, in verse 19, we, we have a shift. The focus shifts from Eli and, and what happened to his daughter-in-law, the, the wife of Phinehas, we're not given her name, but she is pregnant with child. And when she finds out that the ark of God was captured by the Philistines, when she finds out that her husband and his father were dead, she immediately goes into labor. She gives birth. And in verse 20, we learn that she too is going to die. But before she does, the women who were with her, these women who were probably the, the servant women of the tabernacle, they tried to comfort her. They were telling her that she's given birth to a son, and she doesn't even acknowledge them. But in verse 21, we learn that she named the child Ichabod. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had, of God had been captured in the deaths of her husband and his father. In verse 22, she repeats, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now, it's quite possible that Eli's daughter-in-law like Eli, perhaps like his sons, hopefully he had conveyed to his sons the prophecy that, that, that her husband and, and, and her brother were going to die on the same day in battle. Perhaps she knew this, and that's why she seems to, to really focus on the loss of the ark. And that's because the loss of the ark, that's the missing 
it point to the missing ingredient in the prophecy. That's the one thing that they didn't know was going to happen. That's the thing that when, when Samuel's talking to uh, Eli, when, when the Lord gives Samuel this word and he says, I'm going to do a thing that will make the ears, all the ears who hear it tingle. It's not the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas. It's not even the death of Eli. It's the loss of the ark. That's the one thing that God's people never thought would happen. That's the reason it was so shocking to Eli. That's the reason that upon hearing not about his sons, but about the ark that Eli topples over. And so Phinehas' wife, she hears first about the capture of the ark. She laments its lost loss first when she names her son Ichabod. And this meaning, the meaning of the name Ichabod, it's a lament for the loss of glory. It, it, literally, it could be translated, alas, for the glory of Israel. And she's lamenting now that the glory of God, the glory that was Israel's, that God himself, he's departed from them. And so the shocker for her and for her father-in-law when he first heard the news was the capture of the ark of God. Remember, the people of Israel, they are a nation and they are a church combined into one. And this people had become spiritually blind. This people had been fattened by their theft from God of his glory. The loss of the ark was merely the signal of that reality, the sign of that reality. They had departed from the Lord. Of course, there were within the people of Israel, people like Hannah and Samuel and others, the remnant that God describes to Elijah. I've kept 7,000. Don't worry. And so there are people like that who had not become spiritually blind, but they would have been the exception at that time rather than the rule. This leads us to the third point. Stones will cry out. Now, as we said at the beginning, God must be glorified. God is glorified by all of his creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, every other creature that God has made. But most of all, God must be glorified by those creatures that he made after his own image. Well, this period in Israel was not the first time that God had rejected his people. It most definitely would not be the last time that God's people would reject reject God just a few short chapters from now after a prophet has arisen after years and years of silence from God the people do what they demand a king and by that time in chapter 8 Samuel is also the judge of Israel but they want a king 8 verse 6 says that this displeased Samuel and that he prayed to the Lord but God told Samuel that this demand for a king wasn't a rejection of him of Samuel it was a rejection of God himself When the high king of heaven, the son of God, came in the flesh to rule over his people, his own people rejected him. Not everyone, of course, but most. And so as we've said before, the time period in Israel's history that we're in in 1 Samuel 4, it is grim. It is dark. It is dire. Samuel himself, God's faithful servant, won't be mentioned again. He hasn't been mentioned now for a chapter. He won't be mentioned again until chapter 7. But we have to think of it this way. The loss of the ark of the Philistines, uh, to the Philistines in battle, the thing that Israel considered to be their ultimate weapon, its loss showed that God was willing to be humiliated on the field of battle in order to rescue his people from their sin. What does that remind you of? We have to understand, God wasn't fully humiliated here. He, he, the Israelites thought that 
Having the ark with them in battle meant that God was going to bring about the defeat of their enemies. The Philistines, when they realized that Israel had the ark with them, they were afraid. They said in chapter 4, verse 7, a God has come into the camp. And then they captured that God. The Philistines' sense of victory was the equal opposite of Israel's sense of defeat. And so now in the Philistines' minds, they were more powerful than the great God of Israel who had defeated Egypt, who had parted the Red Sea, who had parted the the Jordan River, who had defeated so many inhabitants of Canaan up to this point. And so they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And so in that sense, God has suffered a humiliation. But... We'll get to this in the coming weeks. Without any help from Israel, God will quickly correct the Philistines' way of thinking. In chapters 5 and 6, God sees to it himself that the ark is safely returned to Israel. The Philistines can't handle him. They don't know what to do with him. They have to get rid of him. They have to get him back where he belongs. But for a moment, it appears that he has suffered a humiliating blow. And we can rightfully say that because of the lack of faith of Israel, God's reputation among the pagan peoples of the promised land has suffered a major setback. But God always has a plan for greater good, greater glory. God was using this humiliation to bring about the salvation of his people. He allowed himself to be humiliated so that out of a people who had become so blinded by their sin that he could give to some eyes to see and to some living and beating hearts. He brought his people to the end of themselves, allowing them to suffer an agonizing defeat in order to bring about faith and repentance. He brought about the deaths of the leadership of Israel in order to effect the salvation of a people. And as the passage from Romans 11 makes very clear, it was God's people who rejected him and not the other way around. Paul was living proof of that fact. He was a Jew. And yet God saw fit to bring him into the true church. In Romans 11, Paul first quotes from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 and then from Psalm 69. And he uses those quotes to illustrate how Israel's hearts were hardened and their spiritual eyesight was lost. But God always preserves a remnant. Not everyone in Israel had lost their spiritual sight. God has ensured that there will always be a people on earth worshiping him, no matter the size. He has so ordered things that not a hair on the heads of his elect can fall to the ground without his willing it to happen. He ensures that all things work for our salvation. Now in Luke 19, during what we call Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, less than a week before his crucifixion, his disciples, as he's entering Jerusalem, they sing praises to his name. They give him the glory that the Son of God was rightly owed. And when they do this, what do the Pharisees do? The Pharisees call on Jesus to rebuke them. Why? Because they regard it as blasphemy. They understand that the disciples are worshiping Jesus as God. But what did Jesus say in response? In Luke 19, verse 14, he says this, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
Now, in the grand scope of the Bible, Jesus was making a play on words there. There's no doubt that, in my mind, that if Jesus, God in the flesh, wanted to make literal stones on the ground cry out and worship to him, he would have, he could have done it, without a question. But in the language of the Bible, these disciples who are following Jesus, who are walking along with him, who are worshiping him, they are living stones. They are the stones who are crying out because they were formerly dead stones. Their hearts were stone and not flesh. Jesus was telling the Pharisees that God's creatures cannot help but give him glory, whether voluntarily or not. Human beings bearing the weight of original sin, being cast down into an estate of sinfulness, are the only creatures who resist giving God glory. Human beings, by our own sinfulness, have become stones, heavy in our hardness of heart. Because of our sinfulness, we live to steal glory from God. But God is in the business of making rocks cry out. This is what he does. And so back to our chapter. Eli's and his household's eyes had grown dim. Their hearts had hardened. Israel's eyes had grown dim. Their hearts had hardened. God dealt decisively with Eli and his two sons. He rooted their sin from Israel. God deals decisively with sinners. And we cannot blame God for punishing sin. We cannot look to what God did with Eli and those men and say he was wrong. Because God is God. And what those men were doing was terrible and heinous. Well, brothers and sisters, you and I, we too must repent of our sinful desire to rob glory from God. We must believe God when he says that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, humbled himself, suffered a terrible humiliation by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the accursed cross. If you believe this, then you need to remind yourself that God has resurrected you from your dead, stone-cold state. He has brought you to life. He has given you eyes to see His glory. He's given you hearts of flesh. He's given you ears to hear His voice. And He has given you voices to sing His praises. By his grace, he has done all of these things for us. Most undeserving of wretches, he has done it. And it is by his grace that you and I, that we all can give the glory to God that he deserves. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you that when we are consumed by doubts, when we forget to remind ourselves that we no longer have those hearts of stone, but that you have given us hearts of living, beating flesh, 
We pray, Lord, that we would seize upon it, that we would trust it, that we would know it to be true. That we would not believe the lies of our enemy who seeks to make us believe otherwise. We pray, dear Lord, that you would lift from us the weight of guilt and sin. And we pray that by your spirit, we would have gratitude and joy. And that we would seek to be obedient to everything that you have commanded to show you how how grateful we are. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.